Thanks, Jack. Good evening, everyone. It's great to see you again for a new term of Real Food, as Jack said. Um, welcome back. Now, I want to begin our time by um, reading a quote from um, a book called Knowing God by Jim Packer. Um, this is a way uh, just to introduce our, our series and uh, tonight's talk. The quote, surprise, surprise, is about knowing God. Um, let me read it and uh, just hear the importance that he places on this uh, topic of knowing God. He says, knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Now, isn't it tragic that this is how many millions and billions of people around our world are living their lives? Like the Amazonian tribesman who gets uh, put into Trafalgar Square and nobody explains what's going on or where that person is. People are blind, uh, blundering through life blindfold, unsure about what life is all about because they don't know the God who made them. And as Packer says, if we live our lives like this, then the world becomes a strange and mad and painful place. Our lives become one long, disappointing and unpleasant journey. Because if there is no God, and if there is no future beyond this life, and there's no ultimate justice, and there's no real meaning to our lives, then what's the point? But just flip it the other way with me. If we do know our God, then our lives are worth living. Our world begins to make sense, our lives begin to make sense and we can live with purpose and with certainty because we know who is in charge and we know where he's taking this world. In other words, knowing about God changes everything. This is what we're going to spend our time thinking about over the next eight Sunday nights. We're going to let God speak to us in the Bible so that we can learn what he's like. And as we listen to his word, we're going to find that knowing God has implications for so many different areas of our lives today, in how we think and in what we love, in how we live and in how we speak, in how we rest and in how we work, in how we pray and in what we pursue. So if you're here and you're not a believer tonight, I'm thrilled that I can introduce you to the God of the Bible a God who is far bigger and far better than we can imagine. And if you are a believer and you already know God through Jesus Christ, then this series is an opportunity to deepen your knowledge and deepen your love of him. That's my prayer for this series. Let me pray now that God will be doing that, um, that work among us. Let's pray. Jesus says in um, John 17, Now this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Our Father in heaven, knowing you better is not just an academic exercise like the lectures and the seminars that we'll be doing through the week. To know you is a matter of life and death. To know you and to know your son Jesus is to know eternal life. To deepen our knowledge of you is the path to living joyful, wise, purposeful lives as we wait for your return. And so we pray for your help both tonight and over the next eight weeks. Help us to think rightly about you, that we might worship you for who you really are, rather than who we imagine you to be. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the place we're going to start tonight is really the fundamental starting point for our thinking about God. God is our creator, as we just sang about, and we are his creatures. Now, this simple truth is a profound truth. We've got to understand this, that God is the creator and we are creatures. And there's a distinction between God and everything else. So turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 1, very first page in the Bible. And we're just going to read those words uh, together. Genesis 1, verse 1. Now, I know these will be very familiar words to many of us, but the more I come back to them, the more I realise just how incredible these words are and how much they shape our whole worldviews as we consider just the first verse of Genesis chapter 1. Let me read them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do these first words of the Bible teach us? Well, they teach us that there is a God. And they teach us that this God existed before the beginning of creation. He is the one uncreated being in all the universe and he creates everything else. That's what verse 1 means by the heavens and the earth. Everything. Nothing exists in this world that does not owe its existence to our creator God. This is the great divide. Um, there's a, a, a box to put your uh, to, to draw this on the sheet if you want to. Um, there is God on the uncreated side of the line, and everything else on the created side of the line. God created everything. He created the atom. He created antibodies, and he created the ants that patrol on the ground. He created bees, and he created botanical plants, and he created Bill Clinton. He created cheese and chameleons and the cedars in forests. He created the dust on the ground and dust in Hoffman and the cosmic dust in space. I'll stop there, but you could go through the alphabet later if you want to. God is the creator. He is uncreated and everything we can conceive of, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, things that are here now and things that are yet to come are all here because of the work of our creator who made the heavens and the earth. Now, what does this simple but profound truth mean for us? Well, let me draw out four implications. Firstly, it means that our God is worthy of all honour. Revelation 4 verse 11 says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Why is he worthy? Well, the next bit of the verse says, For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. He is worthy of our honour because he is our creator. 
Psalm 104 recounts many of the acts of God in creation. For example, he stretched out the heavens and made all the creatures of the earth. And the psalm begins and ends with the same refrain, praise the Lord, my soul, praise the Lord. The Lord is worthy of praise because he is our creator. Every mouth was made to praise him. Every heart was created to adore him. He is worthy of honour and worship. But there are several other implications to draw out and these are all dangers we need to be aware of when we think about God and his creation. There is the danger of treating created things as if they were the creator. This is the Avatar problem. I don't know if you've seen the new Avatar film or the old one, but in this beautiful world, there is a goddess who lives in the creation itself. And creatures in this world can tap into her energy and power by putting their hair into plants and things like that. The God is in the creation. And so created things are worshipped as if they are God. This idea is called pantheism. The idea that God and creation somehow share the same being. But that's not the biblical view of creation. God is firmly on the other side of the line, not a part of his creation, but Lord and ruler over it. And so nothing created should be honoured as if it were God himself, whether that's nature or a wooden statue, or a person, or a bank account. None of those things is worthy of worship. They are created realities. That's the first danger. The next danger is the danger of treating created things as if they were uncreated. If the danger I just mentioned is the danger of pantheism, this one is the mistake of atheism to treat created things as if they were uncreated, simply here because of chance or coincidence. I've been reading a book um, about the body recently by Bill Bryson, the famous American writer. It's a book that covers many aspects of the human body and how it works, fascinating book. But it approaches a topic from an atheistic worldview. Our bodily processes are here in Bryson's view simply as a result of evolutionary process. And so as much as he can marvel at the beauty and complexity of our bodies, he has no one to thank and no one to praise because for him, God is firmly out of the picture. This is to treat created things as if they were uncreated. But there's a more subtle way we can do that, even as Christians, and I wonder if this is a bit closer to home for us. Because I think we can all too easily go through life taking for granted the created things that God has graciously given us. The clothes in our wardrobes, the laptop on our desk, the phone in our pockets, the food on our table, the sun in the sky, the water that sustains our lives. We too can live as functional atheists, failing to lift our gaze to the creator. There is the danger of treating created things as if they were the creator, pantheism. There is the danger of treating created things as if they were uncreated, atheism. But fourthly, there is the danger of treating the creator as if he was created. And one problem I tend to find as a six foot three person is that I am hard to fit into a photograph. I can look out of place like a, a gangly giant at the back. 
And in many photos that Natalie and I have taken together, I've had to bend my knees so we look less like Gandalf and Frodo standing side by side without wanting to suggest for a moment that Nat looks anything like Frodo or me anything like Gandalf, or at least not yet. But we can do this kind of thing as we think about God. We, we want to bring him down to our level, domesticate him, tame him, try and fathom him. And what we end up with is a God who looks a lot like us, but just a bit bigger and a bit better. But this is not the God of the Bible. He's not just a bit better than us, but better in every way. He is a different kind of being altogether, not just a supercharged creature, but the infinite creator. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to explore eight ways that God is different from us. We need our gaze to be lifted and for our view of God to be the right view, to take the shrink wrap off God, to put aside the domesticated small God of our imagination and to replace him with the majestic, awesome God that he truly is. And it all starts here, knowing that he is the creator and that we are his creatures. On your sheet are the eight attributes of God that we'll be exploring together. These are some of the things that can be said of God that cannot be said of us. And we'll be explaining these as we go through. I want to say that I am heavily indebted to Jen Wilkin and her book, uh, None Like Him. I know some of you have read this book. She covers 10 attributes of God in that book. We've whittled it down to eight. But if you want to read more and to hear these ideas expressed really well, then do read None Like Him by Jen Wilkin. Now, for the rest of our time tonight, I want to begin to unpack one of these attributes of God that will flow through this series. God is infinite. He is limitless in every way. God is infinite and we are finite. That's the next point on our sheets. We're going to open up Isaiah chapter 40 together um, and I'm going to read these verses to us. And as I read, I want you to look out for a couple of things. What is measured and who does the measuring? What is measured and who does the measuring? Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to read from verse 12 down to verse 26. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales, like he weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They looked for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. I want us to think for a moment about this idea of measuring something. When we measure something in this world, it's a way of comprehending it. It's a way of wrapping our heads around something and feeling some sense of control. That's why it can be scary to try and think of the universe, because it is so unbelievably vast, utterly beyond comprehension. It's also why it's scary to try and imagine eternity, because we have no concept of time that goes on forever. And this is where Isaiah wants to enlarge our view of the Lord by teaching us about the things God measures. Because by measuring them, we can see that he has control over them. So what then does God measure? Well, verse 12, he has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Now, of course, this is using human language to express something of reality. God doesn't literally have hands and he doesn't use his hands to measure the waters. But Isaiah wants us to realise how big God is. We can hold a, a bit of bath water in our hands just for a moment. God can hold the Pacific Ocean in the palm of his hand. He knows every millimetre millilitre of water in his creation because he put it there. With the breadth of his hand, he also marked off the heavens, the vast universe that we have no way of measuring, even with all our scientific prowess, God has measured with the breadth of his hand. He has stretched out his fingers, so to speak, and between his fingers, he can calculate the length of the universe. He has weighed every mountain in, its, in his scales. We put a few bags of sugar on our kitchen scales and the scales can't handle it, but God has measured the mountains in his scales. Do you know that Mount Everest alone is around 175 billion tonnes? That's about 200,000 Golden Gate Bridges. But that's just one of the 108 million mountains in our world. God knows the weight of them all and he has measured them on his kitchen scales. In verse 15, the nations are like a drop in a bucket to God. Eight billion people on this earth, just a drop in the bucket. He knows each person by name, even the hairs on their heads. People are like grasshoppers to him in verse 22. Isaiah is wanting us to get some sense of the limitless nature of God. Nothing in this creation is outside of his comprehension. He measures it all. He has a handle on it all and he is in charge of it all. But the God who measures all things can himself be, be measured by no one. This is the contrast we see in verse 13. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? That word understood there is the same Hebrew word used in verse 12 when we read that God marked off 
the heavens. God has marked off the heavens, measured them, taken them in, but no one has marked off the Spirit of God. No one has comprehended him. No one can measure him. We're dealing here with a God far greater than we can imagine, a being we will never fully grasp and never master and never comprehend. As Job says in chapter 11, verse 7, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than shale. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. We cannot find out the deep things of God. We cannot find out the limit of the Almighty. He is unsearchable, unfathomable, ungraspable, limitless. And this leads Isaiah to that important question that he asks twice in these verses, verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? And verse 25, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Answer, no one. Nothing in this creation is equal to God. Nothing can compare to him. Jen Wilkin writes, to say that anyone or anything is like him is to try and express the unlimited in limited terms. Isaiah is encouraging us simply to behold our God, the God who has measured the heavens, who has weighed the mountains in his scales and who has held the seas in the hollow of his hand. He is the one who rules the world. And let me draw out two implications from this that we can take into discussions over dinner. Um, the first one is this, embracing our limits. When the first man and woman rebelled against God, they were enticed by the promise of the serpent, you shall be like God. It was an alluring prospect to be like God. And the same temptation faces us today to try and push against our creaturely limits in an attempt to be like our creator. But there is a healthy rest and acceptance that comes when we embrace our limits. Every day we are reminded of just how limited we are. I had a couple of migraines recently for the first time and I had to stop what I was doing, lie down in a dark room and try and recover. I am limited. I can only be here with you in this one place speaking to this one group of people. I cannot also be at home with my children or in the pub with friends. However much technology tries to deceive us, we, we cannot be in two places at once. We are limited. I'm limited in terms of energy. I need to sleep for a third of my day. I need to drink and eat to survive. I have a limit to my existence. I will die. We all have limits and we need to remember that these limits are not a result of the fall, many of them, but a result of creation. We were never made to be everywhere for everyone all of the time. And it's a wonderful realisation to know that we can rest in the limitless creator God who alone has no boundaries and who is pleased when we live within the boundaries he has set for us. So embracing our limits. Secondly, worshipping our God. Throughout this series, we're going to see more of what we've seen tonight, that God is far beyond us, bigger, greater, more glorious than we often think. And surely that should lead us to worship him as we contemplate the fact that this God, the limitless God, 
took on the limits of human flesh. The God who measured all things became a child whom Mary could hold in her hands. The God who is far away in his glory became close in his humility. The uncreated God stepped into his creation and in so doing the Lord Jesus made God visible to us. Marvel with me that God took on creaturely limits and lived in creaturely ways in order to redeem creatures through the cross. As John writes in chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. We're going to sing a song now that helps us together to behold our God. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>